The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, good evening, guys. How's it going? All right. Hey, does anybody need a Bible out there? I got some freebies up here. If anyone wants a Bible, just give me a sign. Something? Nobody? Man, you guys are on it tonight. Okay, if, if anybody changes your mind... Some Bibles right there. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn it open to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in two places tonight. So you can, uh, if you want to uh, be an overachiever, you can turn up to 1 Corinthians 7 and also open up to Song of Solomon. Whoa. I like that response. Whoa. Song of Solomon. What are we doing there? So uh, we are in a series that uh, this is only the second one uh, that we've done called Home Improvement as you can see up there. Um, and I'm really excited about this series. We, we really wanted to do something uh, a little bit more practical uh, that would be really hitting um, sort of our, um, an area that we see needing a lot of help. <laughs> and, and that is our families. Um, and, you know, m- most of us have some kind of family relationship. Um, some, you know, most of us, uh, uh, Reality is, is a lot. A lot of Wednesday night is um, people that have kids in Awana. So we really wanted to to give some tools to not only married couples but parents that have kids. But I, I'm going to try to make this very practical for everyone here tonight because I understand that not everyone here is married, and I understand that not everyone here has children. Um, but I think that the tools uh, that we're going to see in the scriptures are are helpful for any believer. Uh, so before we get into this, um, let's let's spend a, a quick couple minutes and invite the Lord uh, tonight, Father. I know uh, that I do not speak um, words of life, Lord, that I am a 28-year-old, 20 year, uh, inexperienced, young, fallen human being uh, that is not anywhere close to being able to stand here and, and tell people what to do. Uh, Lord, I just fully admit that. But God, your word is, um, it is our master. It is what you've left for us to know your will and to know your heart. Um, And so, God, we submit not to to me, not to the authority of the church, not to church tradition. Uh, We submit only to you. And, Lord, we want to delve into the riches of your word tonight because we respect what you have to say. And and not even just that we respect it, God, but we, uh, we want to live our lives reflecting what you have said. So God, would you transform the way that we think about our our marriages and the way that we think about our kids, the way that we think about our relationships and our friendships tonight, God. Uh, And may we have humble hearts that hear and are quick to apply and quick to repent and quick to embrace the Holy Spirit's work of changing our minds in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' powerful name, God's people said, amen. Uh, there's a real specific reason, I alluded to it already, there's a real specific reason we're doing this, this series. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, uh, but our families and our homes are just really struggling. Uh, and I don't think this is something that is an epidemic to Heritage. I don't think this is something that is an epidemic to Medford. Uh, I think this is something that is uh, an epidemic to humanity. But 
we have noticed uh, an exceptional amount, even in the four to five years that I've been at this church, of broken marriages and broken homes, uh, the fallout of the brokenness of divorce, the fallout of the brokenness of dysfunctional relationships. Um, and that grieves the leadership here. Um, it grieves the Lord. And uh, so we want, what we wanted to do in this series was we wanted to just give biblical tools to try to, to do some of the things that we would probably even do in counseling um, biblically and try to just give you guys, whether your marriage is good or your marriage is struggling, whether you're doing good with your, your parenting or struggling with your parenting, regardless of that, we all want to see what the scripture has to say about these things. And it has, it has plenty to say. So that's the, the reason for this series. And, and tonight's topic is, is friendship. And that might seem funny, like why are we talking about friendship if we're having a home uh, improvement um, series? And the reason for that is because, as I'll get to in a moment, I, I, I truly believe that, that friendship is the thing that we should be aiming at over anything else in relationships with our spouses and with our kids. I think that, that friendship should really be kind of what we're, we're, we're shooting for, and I'll unpack that a little bit tonight. But I don't need to explain to you guys what I mean when I say that our homes are broken. How many of you guys, um, just, just by a show of hands, how many of you guys have been exposed to a divorce in a way that has affected you uh, in, in your life in some way? Just out of curiosity. Okay, so nearly, nearly almost everyone in the room has in some way been directly affected by, prone uh, or seen or, or, or even taken part in, been subject to a divorce in some point. Um, you know, how many of you guys would say that you are still really close with your parents right now? Yeah, not, not a lot. <laughs> okay, this is the reality, uh, uh, and this is the church. We're, we're in the, the church. You know, the reality is, is that, that our, our marriages and our relationships with our kids, uh, they're struggling. And I think it's always been that way. I mean, since Cain and Abel, you know, uh, the first two brothers uh, were at war with each other. They, they killed one another, um, and it's, it's always been that way. But why, why is it that there's so much brokenness in the homes of even, even believers within the church? I want to throw a couple things out, and then we'll get to kind of our main uh, focus here. There's a few reasons why I think that we have so much brokenness in our homes. The first one is kind of the no-duh, the obvious, uh, and that is that families are comprised of broken people. <laughs> you know, uh, why is there so much brokenness in the church? Well, humans are broken. Uh, why are families all broken, and why, why are marriages breaking and broken, and, and why is there so much hurt in relationships? Uh, well, because people are broken. We're a broken people. We are not as we ought to be. We uh, have been fallen uh, from our father, Adam, and we are living out a state of perpetual brokenness. We are sinners in our nature. We are sinners in our choices, and that leaks out and affects every part of human life, including families. This is the most pervasive issue when it comes to the brokenness of families. It's the issue that we cannot fix. Okay, the issue of sin and brokenness in our families, it is the issue that we cannot fix, which is why God sent his son Jesus Christ in to fix the one issue that you and I cannot, and that is our own sinfulness. Okay, so the biggest issue, the, the deepest root system of the issue of the brokenness in our families is that our our, our, our Systemically, as human beings, we are sinful, and Christ came to make war and defeat that sinfulness so that we now have a shot at actually having redeemed marriages, redeemed families, redeemed homes, okay? So that's, that's the big reason why there's brokenness, but there's more reasons. It's not just because of sin. The second reason we have so much brokenness in homes and marriages and families is because we have an enemy, 
And we don't talk about that enemy a lot, but we have an enemy, and that enemy actually hates your marriage. He hates it. Can't stand it. How do I know that? Well, because it seems to be the number one thing that he targets. It just does. Uh, he hates the fact that you're parenting your kids. He hates the fact that your family is a unit. Well, why does he hate it? Why is he out to destroy it? Well, there's a few reasons. He hates it because it represents the Trinity. He hates it because when you look at the family, it is a picture of something that is holy and perfect and eternal, and that is the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit living in perfect unity. Did you know that? Your family is a picture of God, the, the Trinity. He hates anything that is a picture of God. And guess what? Your marriage, as we learned last week, is a picture of the covenant between God and man. So therefore, Satan hates that because it's a picture. Because it leads people to allow, maybe be allowed to see something about God and his nature. And Satan ultimately hates you because he hates God. Okay? Satan hates our families because of the stability that family brings into the world. Okay, any, uh, you know, any historian, anthropologist, sociologist who's worth his salt or has a, a head on his shoulders will tell you that the rise of society comes and goes with the breaking down of the family. When kids start growing up without dads, without stable homes, uh, sin runs rampant and culture becomes obsessed with immorality, uh, which leads to a culture that, that has no foundation falls apart. It's what happened to the Greco-Roman world. It repeats itself all throughout history, okay? So Satan knows if he can get at the family, he can get at, he can get at the nation. He can, get at, he can get at people. He can get at the justice that God is trying to establish in the world. He hates the family. He hates the home because of the fact that he knows that if your kids experience parents that love them, they will grow up to more easily understand the love of God. When you have parents that, that model the love of God, it is easier for you to grow up. See, I, I don't really have a big issue with the love of God. But I have friends who their fathers have abandoned them, molested them, hurt them, broken them. And they have this just really hard time. Like they're, They start out as, at a deficit believing the love of God because their father was a terrible father. So Satan knows if he can destroy the parental picture, then it is harder for people to believe in the love and compassion and steadfastness of God. Those are all reasons Satan is attacking the family. He hates unity. He loves division. But it's not just sin, and it's not just the enemy. There, there's more reason. There's some cultural things at play, too, that I think are destroying our homes. In our families. I, I think that our culture's obsession with self-dependence is also playing a part in destroying our homes and our families, even within the church. You may not know this, but you are infiltrated daily with a worldview from our culture that tells you that the, the pinnacle of the human existence in the West is to be the self-made man, to be the self-made woman. What that means is that you achieved your position with no help from anyone. You, by your pulling up yourself by your own bootstraps, achieved the successful state. Now, this has not always been the normal type of thinking in most cultures. In most ancient cultures, especially biblical cultures, you needed your parents. Without your parents, you had no lineage. You had no success. You had no wealth. You had no inheritance. In our world, things have changed to where we actually love to, as quickly as we can, ditch our parents, move them to the side, and move on to greater things. How many Disney movies 
I'm trying to unwire my four-year-old's brain as she's watching Disney movies. How many Disney movies at the crux of them have a rebellious child who needs to run away from their parents because their parents are forcing something on them that is crushing their poor little dreams. And once they ditch their parents, then everything works out for them and they find their perfect purpose. How many Disney movies are like that? We're just watching Moana the other day and I'm like, okay, Myla, think about this. Is it okay that she's disobeying her parents? Well, it all works out in the end. Yeah, but is it okay that she's disobeying her parents? No. Yeah, she achieves her dreams and blah, blah, blah. This is not the way that family was designed to be. You know, you get into the book of Genesis and you look at something like Jacob and his 12 sons and you read about uh, the, you know, the stories of Jacob and his 12 sons and Jacob, man, he's calling all the shots. He's the boss. He's in charge and they go, oh, these guys are probably in high school. And these are full grown men with families. Jacob's the boss, dude. He's the boss till he dies. He's in charge. They need Jacob. Jacob holds the deed to their inheritance. Okay, you know, when, when someone would get married in that day, they'd build a room on. When the prodigal son came to the father and said, hey, I want all my inheritance now, that was insulting. Because what he was saying is he basically saying, you want me dead. You have no interest in me. It was the most insulting thing someone could have said to someone in that time. The way that it used to be in biblical times was that family was just part of your success. Family was part of life. Inheriting the family business, that was just life. And we've pushed against that. We've made family sort of this hindrance to anything that gets in our way. So from high school on or junior high on, it's just like my parents are just annoying. I can't wait to get out from under their roof and move on to my life, to do my thing under no one's covering other than my own authority. But here's the fourth reason that I think, the fourth, re fourth reason that I think our homes and our, our families are, are being so broken. Not only sin, not only the enemy, not only a culture obsessed with self-dependence, but this is the one I want to talk about tonight. I think that our idea of friendship has been greatly tainted. I, I think that we have lost the biblical understanding of what it means to be a friend to our spouse and what it means to be a friend to our kids. And those are the two things I'm going to really double click into. Okay, I want to I speak to, to spouses and I want to speak to parents primarily tonight. Okay, uh, I believe that we've lost what friendship is. I believe that at the core of every truly enduring relationship that we have is friendship. When you get to the end of your life and in your marriage, if it, if it can continue to the end of your life, and the romance fades away, and the physicality fades away, and your sexiness fades away, right? And you have nothing left, okay? We exit the world the way we came in. Okay, we, 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 we just have not a lot left when we get to the end of our life. What will be left of your marriage? Friendship. Friendship is the thing that will last. Friendship is the thing that we should be looking to invest in, the thing that should be a primary focus for us, not only with our kids, or not only with our marriages, but also with our kids, when your kids grow up and move out and no longer are under your covering and you're not the boss anymore, what is going to make them want to call you and have a relationship with you? Whether you're able to have a friendship with them. Whether you're able to have a friendship. So that's what I want to zoom in on tonight. I was sitting uh, with a brother in Christ over lunch the other day and we were talking about our marriages. And he just asked me a really great question. He said, Sam, how's your marriage? 
And I said, you know, so I got to talk about my, my wife and I and how we're doing. And I asked him the same question. Now, this brother, um, him and his wife, they've been through some stuff, man. Like, they, they've been through some stuff. Like, they've been married for almost 30 years. Um, and there has been multiple adulteries in this relationship. Okay, and, and he knows, and I know, we know the baggage as we're having this conversation and as he's discussing, and I know what he's done to his wife, and, and I know what he's repented of, and I know that what he's come away from, and I know what he's walked through for almost 30 years. This marriage has been hard. And, and I said, how is your marriage, brother? And he looked at me, and his eyes started to well up, and he said, you know, I never used to understand. Now, keep in mind, this woman has forgiven this man over and over again. Okay, she has chosen. She didn't have to. She grounds for divorce, but she chose to stick with him, and he has repented, and he has grown, and he looks me in the eyes with tears in his eyes, and he says, I never used to understand what anyone was talking about when they said that your wife was your best friend. He said, now I get it. He said, that woman, as tears are rolling down his eyes, is my best friend. She has been there for me through things you cannot imagine. And I just thought to myself, man, that's the win right there. That's the win. That's what makes friendship, that's what makes relationships last, is friendship. But we have to define friendship. We can't let the world do that for us. If we let the world do that for us, we're going to end up with some wacky stuff. You see, the world defines love as a feeling, right? Love is a feeling, but that's not true, is it? How does the Bible define love? The, 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 the Bible actually defines love as a person, is Jesus. And when we and I enter into the act of love, it's not that I feel something, it's that I choose something. I choose to reflect the person who is love, Jesus Christ. That's, that's real love. The culture says that marriage is a feeling of romance or happiness. So when that romance and happiness ends, then we might as well just end this thing because there's nothing here. I don't love him anymore. How many times have we heard that? I just don't love him anymore. Okay, well, what did you think love was? Did you think it was a feeling? It's not a feeling. Love is a choice. It's a commitment. It's a commitment to reflect God's covenant relationship with us. Culture says that friendship or being a friend with your kids means that you just want them around and you want them to like you. Okay. What the Bible says is that, that friendship with your kids is taking the, the posture of God toward us where you do what is right for them no matter what. It's a choice. You see that? It's a choice. So we have to define what this thing called friendship is. And you guys, whether you realize it or not, you have been spoon-fed from the, probably from the time that you were born, you have been spoon-fed lies about what true friendship is. When I say the word friendship, you, you probably have instantly come to your mind, you think of your buddy, somebody you go bowling with. Maybe it's your friend that you used to, you know, you used to live with in college. Yeah, he's a friend. He was in, in, my, in my wedding. When you think of friendship, maybe you just think of the, the person that, that brings joy to you, okay? That's really not what I'm talking about here. <laughs> it's really not what I'm, I'm pointing out at all. And when I say friendship with your wife, some of you guys just think, oh, that, that means that you just like hanging out and you laugh. Okay? That's, it's more than that. So what I want to give you guys tonight, and that's all by way of intro, what I want to give you guys tonight is a biblical framework for what friendship is within our homes, within our marriages, within our uh, relationship with our kids. And we're going to just look at three quick things. And this is going to be really easy to remember. Okay? This is an easy framework to remember. I want to encourage you guys and myself, because I really need this as well, I, I want to encourage all of us that the scripture calls us to three postures 
in friendship with our spouse and with our kids. Three postures. The first posture is this, is that we need to learn how to be side-by-side with our wives. We need to learn to be side-by-side with our kids in the parallel, okay? And I'll unpack what that means. Secondly, we need to learn to be back-to-back with our kids, back-to-back with our spouses, Okay, I'll explain what that means. And then thirdly, we need to learn to be face-to-face. Those are the three postures that we need to be. And now listen, this isn't like, oh, I'll pick one. Oh, oh yeah, like I got one of those, this is good. No, all three of these are important. All three of these are important. You can't just pick one. These three go together. These three build the framework for what I see as God's biblical mandate for friendship. Okay, now sermons like this, when you give three points, uh, sometimes people go, oh, cool, this is the fix-all. Okay, my, marriage, my, my husband's a jerk, or my wife's a jerk, and uh, no matter what I do, so if I just do these three points, everything will work out? No, probably not. How do I know that? Well, Jesus was the perfect friend. Jesus did everything he possibly could have done to love his disciples, yet they still betrayed him. He went to the cross being mocked and was ultimately murdered. So this is no guarantee that, that just because you love in all three of these ways and are a friend to someone, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that that person is going to reciprocate that. But regardless of that, this is the call for believers. You and I who have been born again are now children of God. This is the call for us is how we are to be friends to our spouse, how we are to be friends to our, our kids. Okay, So this is not a, a, a perfect, everything will work out if I just do these three things. I just want to throw that out there. Okay. What these three postures are is a, a, a biblical prescription for God-honoring, Christ-reflecting, self-denying relationships. Okay? Uh, and a lot of you guys aren't going to like it. So, here we go. Number one. Decide, decide. Now, we like to think that all of our time with our spouses... Is, 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 the, is the face-to-face, the romance, the enjoyment, the fun. We like to think of that when we think of marriage. And a lot of, like, when, when people are engaged, when people are, are, are young and they're, they're engaged, they haven't been married yet, and they're thinking of marriage, they're thinking of the face-to-face, right? They're thinking of the honeymoon. They're thinking of the wedding. They're thinking of the fun times they're going to have. They're thinking of life before they have three kids, Okay, uh, man, does that change? Okay, I have three babies right now. Two of them are in diapers. One of them's a four-year-old. Uh, I work anywhere between fifty to sixty hours a week. My wife and I's relationship has gone from a lot of face-to-face to a whole lot of side-to-side. Okay, so that's just reality. Now you can say, "Well, Sam, that's not right." Well, that's real life. Okay, that is real life. When I get home, it's go time, man. I work all day. I'm up at five. I work all day. Uh, I come home, and, and it's, it's dinner. Dinner and dish time takes us all the way to 7 o'clock. Okay, by the time the kids are in bed, it's 7.30, but they don't stay in bed, right? You guys know that. They're out of bed. They want water. They got to poop. They got to whatever, right? Till like 9 o'clock, man. By that time, my wife and I are dead. We're crashed out. There's no face-to-face time. We're lucky if we get 20 minutes. Okay, we're like, oh, we'll get up at five and we'll hang out, and then they'll like snooze doesn't happen, right? So the reality of the reality of marriage is that we spend a lot of time side to side. And we have to understand what importance that side to side has. Because if that's the majority of what we're gonna do in relationship, then that time matters, right? That's not throwaway time. That matters. We need to figure out that the, the stuff that we do when we're side to side is actually growing us together as a couple. Now, if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we're going to take a look for this. Um, 
This passage is really funny because, man, I've never heard, and maybe correct me if you're wrong, I've never heard 1 Corinthians 7 used at a wedding, ever. I've never heard it used at a wedding. I've never heard it used really hardly at all. I mean, this, this is like one of the most untaught passages about marriage. You want to know why? Because Paul kind of makes it sound unimportant. Uh, you'll see. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let's start in verse 6. Here's what Paul says. He says, now as a concession, not a command. Okay, what Paul's saying is he's, he's kind of like, hey, guys, look, this isn't, you don't have to do this. But this is just kind of like an opinion, okay? This is just kind of what I think. He says, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. What does he mean? He means single. Paul's a single dude. He's not a married guy. He is a single apostle that is full-time. Every second of his life is spent either making tents or ministering the gospel to Gentiles and planting churches, okay? This is his life. He says, I actually wish that all of you guys were single. Well, that doesn't sound very Christian-y. What are we talking about? Is this in the Bible? Sam, where are you getting this? But each, he says, but each one has his own gift from God. He calls it a gift from God, which is cool, okay? He, he's saying, in, in, in essence, if you're married, that's a gift. If you're single, that's a gift. Okay, whatever it is, it's a gift. It's one of a kind and one of another. He says, verse 8, to the unmarried and the, and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, that's interesting because that doesn't really reflect our Christian culture, does it? Because I don't know about you, but growing up in church, I feel like marriage, if, it, like, if you're not married in the church, you're weird. I mean, and no one would ever say that, obviously, but we treat people like that. Like, hey, we need leaders in the church. Oh, these guys are married. Well, what about the single people? Like, where, where did we get this idea that marriage just somehow puts you on this other level in the church? Everything we do is geared towards marriage. Everything we talk about is geared towards marriage. And I don't think we do it on, on purpose, but I just think sometimes that's the culture we create in churches, where marriage is somehow the primary focus of the church. Paul's saying completely the opposite. He's saying, hey, marriage is great. Marriage is fine. If I, just my opinion, I don't think you should. What are you talking about, Paul? That's, that's just weird. Well, what he's saying here is he's saying that marriage is not the goal. Marriage is not the goal. That doesn't mean marriage is bad, but marriage is not the point. The point is what? The point is Christ and his church. That's first. That's foremost. Marriage is a gift, but it is not the goal. What Paul is not saying that it's wrong to get married. He makes that very clear. He's not wrong to get married. It's not wrong to not get married. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you serve Christ. He's saying marriage is subservient to the ultimate goal. Marriage is not the end-all or the be-all of the Christian experience. Okay, it's an option. It's something you can do or not do. It is not the ultimate sanctification tool. We, talked about, we talk about marriage all the time like, if you don't get married, you're not going to get sanctified. Like, no, you could get sanctified and not be married. God can use other things in your life other than the tensions of relationship and marriage to knock the edges off of you, Okay. It's very possible. It is one of the many ways that God can use to bring glory to himself. One of the many ways. Okay? Now look at verse 28 moving forward. And he really, he talks, you can go back and read it, but he talks about it fairly in depth. It's a pretty big piece of, of scripture devoted to this. In verse 28 he says, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles what does he mean by that? Those who marry will have worldly trouble. Does that mean that you're going to be more worldly if you marry? No, that's not what he's saying. 
He's saying that if you get married, man, it's a lot of work. Does anybody agree? I know you guys are sitting with your spouses, you're like, I can't raise my hands. Like, it's a lot of work. Marriage takes a lot of work. I mean, countless arguments sometimes. I mean, you gotta communicate like way more than when you're single. When I was single, I just did whatever I want. When I'm married, man, I communicate with my wife. She is one flesh with me. So I call her multiple times a day. We connect, we talk, I let her know. We talk, we talk about the, the bank account, we talk about the kids, we talk about poopy diapers and blowouts all day long. I mean, we're communicating. We are one person. You know what I mean? That's not the only reason we call. We, we call to say I love you too. But that, we communicate a lot, and, we, and it takes a lot of time you know, to communicate. That's the reality. He's saying that when you get married, you're inviting a lot into your life of things, a lot of worldly stuff, not worldly in the sinful sense, but worldly in the sense of this is physical things. It takes a lot. Same with having kids, man. I mean, my kids, my three kids, they're my first ministry. And man, they take a lot of time. Like, I don't do ministry in the evenings. I don't do worship practice. I very limit Bible studies and things in the evenings because I'm home with my kids. That's my priority. Those kids are my priority in the evenings. That time is theirs, right? Now, if I didn't have those kids, I would have that time. That's all that Paul's saying there. He's not saying it's wrong to have kids or right to have kids or wrong to have marriage. Or He's just saying, calling it how it is. He said, I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. What a weird sentence to come out of the Bible. Let those who have a marriage live as though you do not have a marriage. Okay, well, let me explain what Paul's not saying here. Okay, before you're like, sweet, let me call the boys and we're going to play poker tomorrow night. Um, because this says in the Bible to live like a single guy. So sorry, babe, you got to stay home with the kids and I'm going to go. You know, no, that's not, that's not what he's saying. So calm down. Okay, um, it's not what he's saying. Here's what, what he's saying. Because you have to hold this in tension in contrast with the other things that Paul has said about marriage. Paul, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, he says some, some very high, lofty things about marriage. Marriage is a gift of God. It's, it's an illustration of the covenant between, between God and man, and that, that, um, that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church, to nurture them like one flesh. I mean, it speaks of marriage very highly. But then yet, here's Paul talking about marriage like, yeah, do it, you know, if you need to. So you have to balance those. Paul's not saying that you can neglect or should neglect your, your spouse. In fact, if you do neglect your spouse, then you're not even qualified to be an elder in the church. The qualifications to be a leader in the church is you have to lead your family. You are the pastor of your home. Your kids got to be walking with the Lord, know the gospel, right? Your kids have to be at least being led. I mean, we can't control what they do, but at the end of the day, we got we to be responsible for their spiritual maturity, right? This is the mandate of a biblical leader. So Paul's not saying that we should shirk our responsibilities. That's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying here is simply this, okay? Marriage and family is, yes, God breathed, yes, God endorsed, yes, God protected, but it must be built upon the foundation of the kingdom of God. What he's saying is, is that don't get it out of place. Marriage is amazing. I would not change my life. I love my marriage. It has grown me. My wife and I are best friends in the truest sense of the term. I absolutely adore my marriage. I would not change it because that is what God has put in my life. But my marriage has to come below my personal relationship with Christ Jesus. Amen? It has to be in its right place. It has to be. If we pull it out of its place and we make it our God, it's a terrible God. It's a terrible God. And I really think part of the problem we're having in Christianity is we have made much too much of marriage. 
Now, marriage is a good thing, but it is not God. Okay, and, and it is not the primary reason that God gave us breath in our lungs. Now, why does Paul take such a different tone in Corinthians as he does in Ephesians? I, I, I was thinking about that. Man, why is it in Ephesians he's like, marriage is great, marriage is good. And then Corinthians, he's just like, yeah, marriage. Here, here's why I think it is. I think because, and this is my theory, okay, but I think to the Corinthian church, he was talking to some carnal people, man. He was talking to some worldly people. I mean, look at the stuff he was addressing. They were worldly-minded. They were not spiritually-minded people. They were not mature in the Lord. When he wrote to the Ephesians, he was speaking to a more mature group of people that he could talk highly of marriage, and they wouldn't make too much of it. And what he knows is he says, if I make too much of marriage or too little of marriage, they're going to take that and run with it. So what these guys need is they need Jesus, man. They need to submit their hearts to God and the personal relationship of an individual and God and put marriage in its rightful place, and they just need maturity. They need to be spiritually minded. That's why I think there's the difference there. Now, Jesus, uh, he doesn't echo this. In fact, Paul is echoing Jesus. But if you look at Luke 14, don't, don't turn there. I'll just read it. But Luke 14, 26, this is what Jesus says about family, just to kind of nail this point home. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and what hates, whoa, okay, hold on. Again, this does not sound like Christianity. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who does not bear his cross, he who does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. Now, you guys probably know already, but what Jesus is saying there is not that you should hate your family. He's saying that your family is nothing compared to the glory of God. That your family should be so small and your life should be so small and insignificant compared to the riches and the importance and the glory and your love for God. That is the way that it should be. And if you have a godly wife or a godly husband or godly children, they believe that and they want that. I have no problem with my wife saying, I hate you compared to Jesus. Now that might be a weird way to say it, but I have no problem with that. I want my wife to love God so much more than me. He clarifies it a little bit in Matthew's account. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So in other words, if, if, if something is out of whack here, stuff's not going to go well. Now, why am I bringing this up? I believe that, as I already said, I believe that in an effort to preserve and sanctify marriage, which is a good thing. I think that the Christian community has seen that marriage is struggling, families are falling apart, the enemy is working overtime, so let's make books and podcasts and all of this stuff, and let's just inject Christian culture with tons and tons and tons and tons of things about marriage. And I think that a lot of it is good and a lot of it is helpful, but I think sometimes people start to think, well, maybe Christianity is more about marriage than it is about Jesus, I mean, maybe, like, like, people are quicker to thank the Lord for marriage than they are Christ. People are, when they think of their relationship with God, they think of how they're doing in their family. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's get our priorities straight. Listen to what Francis Chan, a lot of these thoughts, these were things that Francis Chan pointed, pointed out in his book on marriage. And listen to what he said, just a little excerpt from him. He says, because divorce runs rampant, even in the church, we tend to emphasize marriage more than Scripture does. But by doing so, we may be hurting marriages rather than mending them. 
Couples become self-centered rather than mission-focused. Singles who once radically served Jesus now spend their days merely improving and enjoying their marriage. Either that or, on the other side, they quarrel incessantly and spend their days in counseling and despair. Either way, they become virtually worthless for kingdom purposes. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying the church had good intentions. But what it's led people to believe is that the Christian life is just focusing on your marriage. The problem with that is, is that focusing on your marriage doesn't always fix your marriage. In fact, focusing on your marriage sometimes can make your marriage worse. What we really need is we really need to focus more on Christ. We really need to focus more on Christ. But that's not really what people want to hear. When people come in and they have marriage problems, they say, can you give me the three tools to fix my wife and I's communication problems? Can you give me the three tools to make my husband not a jerk anymore? And the answer to that that we all know is, you know, the reality is we can give you tools, but you both need to submit your hearts to Christ. You both need to get your priorities straight. You guys are spending all your time bickering in your marriage, and Satan is having it your way. You are useless. You're useless to the kingdom of God because you're so consumed with your marriage that Jesus is like, hey, when are you going to start serving me? I believe that thriving marriages are built on kingdom partnerships. The side to side matters. It matters because majority of the time we spend is side to side. My wife and I have found, and not only is this biblically true, this is just from experience, that when we are on fire for Christ, we don't have to try to invest in our marriage. We do. We just do. When we are on mission together, when we are serving together, when we are praying together, and we are praying separately, and we are reading together, and we are reading separately, and we are serving together and serving separately, when we are submitted to God in our hearts together and separately, man, our relationship does well. Okay, you want to spice things up in your marriage? Go to war with your spouse. And I don't mean fighting. I mean go to war side by side with your spouse and go do something for Jesus. Go do something for the kingdom of God and watch how something comes alive in you when you both step into a purpose together and you go, man, enough sitting around talking about being narcissistic, talking about our relationship all the time and all the problems we have. We know we're broken sinners. Let's get out the door and let's go do something together for the kingdom of God and watch Satan flee. Man, side to side, shoulder to shoulder, I invite you guys who are in marriages and who have kids to take your family to war, side by side, because we are in a war right now. It's not time to sit around and talk about how bad things are. It's time to get to work. You were designed to serve the kingdom of the king, and you were designed to do it with others. And if you are married, praise the Lord, you have your best friend to do it with. Man, how exciting is that? Now, i got to ask you guys some, some probing questions on this. To the married person, to the married person, what are you and your wife side by side working towards? Is it the next mortgage? Is it the next project in your house? Is it the next car you want to buy? Is it the next degree you want to get? Is it the next trip you want to plan? Is it the next, uh, is it the retirement that you're wanting to work towards? What is your, what binds your marriage together? What do you do side by side? Is it all just about the kids? Is it just child rearing? Is it all about comfort? Is it all about earthly, physical things? Now, those things aren't evil, but I'm telling you right now, if those are the things that you and your wife are communicating about all the time, if those are the things that you find your wife's shoulder up against yours on, your marriage is destined to fail because those things don't matter. They're not evil. They're not bad. My wife and I talk about what we might want to do at the house or what you know, trip we might go. Those are all part of life. 
But when my wife and I's marriage comes alive is when we step into kingdom work together. And we, we say, how, do we, how can we become more like Christ in our marriage? How can we make our family less selfish? How can we serve Jesus in a radical way? Man, our friendship comes alive in that moment. We had this realization a couple years ago when we just went, man, so much of what we do is about us. So much of the conversations we do is about us and our comfort and our plans and our hopes and our this and our that. And in reality, God's saying, hey, what about the kingdom? And so we said, well, why don't we do something together for Jesus? Well, you're like, Sam, you're a pastor. Yeah, but all the stuff that I do is mostly by myself. My wife doesn't get to come up here and preach with me. I wish she did. Okay, my wife doesn't get to come lead worship with me. My wife doesn't get to build small groups with me. But my wife and I wanted to do something together. So we said, let's get out in the community. Let's become casas. Let's go love on some foster families. Let's go love on some foster kids. And it's been an awesome experience because it gets my wife, on, my wife and I on mission together. It's grown us together. And I just want to encourage you guys, think about, take inventory in our relationship, how much of it is centered on us and how much of it is centered on others. You want a healthy marriage? Serve together the kingdom of God. You look at the Bible, you see couples like Joseph and Mary. Couples that, that their entire, really, marriage was centered on raising Christ. You look at, like, Ananias and Sapphira. This couple in the, in the early church that just gave all of themselves to partnering with Paul for the movement of the gospel. And then you see couples like, I, I think I got it backwards. Yeah, someone's got to correct me on that. Come on, it's heresy, throw it out. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla, okay, good couple. Then you see couples like Ananias and Sapphira who were so focused on their own worldly stuff that they held back from the Lord, right? So you look at that contrast. Now, I have to say a quick note. I don't want to belabor this, but a quick note to the unequally yoked because I know some of you guys are thinking like, yeah, that's great, but my spouse doesn't care about that stuff. My spouse doesn't care about doing kingdom work. My spouse doesn't care about serving Jesus. I come to church alone. Okay. And I just want to say a few things to you, whoever that is. First of all, remember that your faith is autonomous from your spouse. My faith is autonomous from my spouse. My wife and I are one flesh, but I will stand before God alone. And so you're responsible for your walk with God. Let God deal with your spouse. And I want to say this also, that you are responsible to grow in whatever pot you have been planted in. Paul says in 7.17, in that same passage, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. I'm sorry. I really, it breaks my heart when I see Christians that want to move long, alongside in kingdom work with their spouse and their spouse is not interested. It breaks my heart. But just remember that God has assigned you nothing that you can't carry with his help. God has put you in the place that he wants you, and by his grace, he will carry you through that. And then one last thing to that person I want to say, and that is don't forget when it comes to being unequally yoked, that in the relationship between you and Christ, you are the unequal yoke. Don't forget that. Act to your spouse as Christ acts to you, because in your relationship with Christ, he is the one constantly being like, come on. But he is patient, and he is kind, and he prays for us, and he bears with us. So your, your spouse may not even be a believer. Your spouse may not have interest in that. Show them your faith. Show them your walk, and watch what happens. Now, so not only is it side to side. It took way too long on that one. 
but it's also back-to-back. Now, true friendship also demands not only that you go to war with one another, but listen, that you go to war for one another. Okay, it's not just that we, we, we are on the same battlefield, the same mission plan. We also need to have each other's backs. This is the part the world really doesn't like. The world, can get on, the world can get on board with the whole missional thing. Like, yeah, we'll go be missionary. We'll go do something. We'll give more money or we'll, we'll spend our time doing things for the Lord. Yeah, sure, whatever. But the world doesn't like is this part. This is the commitment piece. This is the piece that says, hey, if you want to be friends with your spouse, if you want to be friends with your kids, you got to build some trust you got to be in it for the long run. This thing takes time. It takes work. It takes years. Now, I don't have to try to convince anybody anytime, most of the time, that marriage is cool. You, know, you want to know how I know that? Because uh, $35,000 is the average cost of a wedding. Because 2.5 million weddings happened a year. Okay? Uh, I believe that's just in this country, along with 800,000 divorces every year. Um, the wedding industry is worth 53 uh, $53.4 billion. What that tells me is that people are totally on board with the idea of marriage and having your best friend and your soulmate for your rest of your life. The world, they love that idea. That's awesome. I mean, movies about that. They, they're all about it. What they're not about is the cost of that. And I don't mean the fiscal cost, because obviously dudes drop 20 Gs on a ring and then make their wife pay it off when they get married. Um, you know, obviously that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the cost of investing your entire life to try to have this thing called friendship in a marriage or with your kids. Uh, that, that cost is not something people really want to talk about. Did you know that 80% of marriages that end, end in the first four years? 80% of marriages that end, end in the first four years. That tells me that people thought they were getting something else. <laughs> And most of the time, they just think, oh, I just probably got a dud, so let me just try again, right? Um, second marriages, 70% of those end in divorce. Third marriages, it jumps to like 90%. Okay, but regardless, so, so 80% of marriages that end, end in the first four years, which tells me that people thought they were getting into something that was totally different than what they actually got into. And what they didn't realize is that that friendship thing that they put in their vows when they wrote them, that friendship thing that they got tattooed on their hand or they put inscribed on the inside of the ring, that friendship thing that they have hanging on their wall, that's not going to just happen because you signed a marriage certificate. That takes some serious back-to-back time. And what I mean by back-to-back is that makes takes some seriously, first of all, some serious safety. I said we were going to go to Song of Solomon. Let's go there real quick. Song of Songs 2, verse 15. There's a really cool verse in here that I just want to pull up to your attention. It says this in verse 15. Now, you guys know the Song of Solomon. It's really this this romance uh, about... um, Solomon and his bride, and, uh, but there's, there's one thing in here that was pointed out to us in our, our, our premarital, and it was really cool. Verse 15, it says, catch the foxes. Now, actually, let's back up to verse 14. It says, oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Now, the writer here, whoever is, is proclaiming and doting on the other one in this marriage relationship. Uh, they're explaining how, how lovely and precious that person is to them. And look at verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. What's being said here is this saying that 
that relationship is like this garden, man. It's something that needs to be cultivated. It's something that is to be enjoyed, but it's something that needs to be cultivated. And, and what happens in these relationships is that there's these little foxes, these little things that come in and they eat away at the vineyard, the thing that we should be enjoying. Now, you can probably pick up the metaphor here, okay? That in marriage, uh, in relationship, in friendship, there are these foxes, these little things that just come in and destroy. Now, they're little things. Now, things that destroy marriages are not always big things. They're not always, oh my goodness, that was adultery. Oh my goodness, that was abandonment. Or, oh my goodness, that was blatant, you know, just walking away. A lot of times, it's the little things that destroy marriages. It's the little things that destroy friendships. And that's what uh, is being said here in Song of Solomon. Small lies. Small inconsistencies in character. Small digs at one another. Those small things that you know are going to hurt. Small gossips, talking to your buddies about your wife in a way that's disrespectful to her or vice versa. Small inconsistencies in character. Small signs that you don't care about them. Small signs that you would leave if it got to a certain point. Those things will destroy any chance of having that true sense of friendship. They're like these foxes. They just destroy it. And what is being said in Song of Solomon is that you need to wall this thing off, man. You need to create safety around your relationship in order to have this true friendship where that person knows that they can truly be known by you. They can truly let themselves out and, and this garden can actually be tended. Consider how Jesus creates this for us in, in our relationship. Consider that. He, he, he offers us complete security in our friendship. He offers us complete security. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He, he, he offers complete covering, forgiving of himself to us. He offers and pursues us continually regardless of our disposition towards him. He is the perfect picture of what safety within friendship looks like. And what I'm saying to you guys is tonight is that if you want true friendship in your marriage or in your family, you have to create safety in that place where they know they can trust you. Now that doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time. It takes a long time. We have to see our best years with our spouses as ahead of us. The problem is the world has said that the best years are in the first four. <laughs> kind of makes sense why everyone gets divorced in the first four. The best years of your marriage are the first four. That's such a lie. I love my marriage so much more than I did in the first four years. It was good then. It's better now. My wife and I, we communicate better. We know how to fight better. <laughs> we know how to code. We just, we just do better. We're, we're more mature in the Lord. And I look at my marriage and I think, Lord, I can't wait till we've been married 30 years. I can't wait till we've been married 40 years. I think how great our friendship's going to be at that time. How much better we're going to be at pushing each other towards the Lord and growing in kingdom work. We need to have that perspective. The perspective of safety, back to back. That I have my wife's back. That she has my back. And I want to say this about parenting. It's the same with your kids. Your kids need to know that you're there for them, that you're not going to walk out that door, that you're going to be there. It's important. And number three, not only is it side to side, not only back to back, but also the face to face. Okay, now the face to face, um, the romance, the enjoying of one another, it only happens if you get the other two. Now, you can get glimpses of it, okay, obviously. But I'm telling you that if you, if you do not feel safe in your marriage, the romance is not going to be there. 
the friendship is not going to be there. If you do not have commonality of kingdom purpose and kingdom mission, the romance is hard. And so a lot of people, what they do is they think marriage is the face-to-face, and they, are, they go in and they try to fix the face-to-face, but the problem is not the face-to-face. The problem is the back-to-back. The problem is there's no trust. There's no longevity. The problem is not, is not just that. It's the side-to-side. There's no common mission. There's no serving of Jesus together. The face-to-face comes when the other two are established. Now, one more thing quickly uh, in Song of Solomon. Flip over to chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 10. I want to point out to you, uh, in in the context of marriage here, what it means to have that face-to-face. This is my beloved. Now, this is her. This is the, the, the woman in this, doting over her husband. And she says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. Never been called that one. Distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. Notice how she describes him. His locks of wavy black, his locks are wavy black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory. Not sure what that word is, something, something. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like the Lebanon, his appearance, I'm getting tired. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. Now, why did I read all that? I want you to notice that the way she's describing him is with valuable things, expensive things. His legs are like gold. His arms are like gold. All those things that she describes are rare and valuable things. Now, if you were to draw that, it would look really funny, right? But that's not the point. The point is that she sees value. And when I, talked about face, when I talk about face-to-face in this relationship, I'm talking about seeing the value in your spouse, seeing the value in your kids and enjoying that, delighting in that. But notice also what she says at the end. In verse 16, she says, His mouth is most sweet and he is all together desirable. She's not just noticing the parts that are valuable about him. She's also come to a point where she can now embrace all of him. Now, Pastor Jeremy, we're talking about this today. There's this this stage in marriage where, where you love things about someone. And then you get married and you, you realize that those things were not all of that person. <laughs> that was just some of that person. Then you get exposed to the rest of that person. And it doesn't usually go very well. There's a point in marriage where you have to have a safe enough place, a garden that is walled off enough, where your spouse can learn to love not just the valuable parts of you, but also the parts that are broken, the parts that are struggling. That is the face-to-face. In the garden... Adam and Eve were naked, right? They were fully naked, exposed, unashamed of who they were. They were fully known by one another. What was the first thing that happened when the fall came? They covered up, not only from God, but from each other. Shame entered in. Something was broken. Now, I suggest to you guys that that the process, the long process of growing in marriage relationship is the process of God putting us back into the state where we can be fully known and fully know someone. We have to go through that season where we are willing to say, I'm going to embrace all of you. She says, you are altogether desirable. 
all of you. And then thirdly, she says, what? This, verse 16, this is my beloved, and this is my friend. She sees him as her friend. He's not just a valuable, he's not just, she's not just loving him in his whole self, but she sees him as her friend. So much more I want to say, but completely out of time. One last thing. You guys might be thinking, how do I do this? My marriage is too broken. We don't communicate. It's too fractured. I don't even know where to start. Okay, and I want to pick up an analogy that I used a few weeks back, and that is that this thing called friendship, marriage, covenant, relationship, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And here's the good news about a marathon. If you fall, the race is not over. You have lots of room to run still. And I want to encourage you guys to do some, some thinking tonight. Man, where, where am I not having my spouse's back? Where am I not creating a safe environment where, where we can actually know and be known by one another? Where, where am I not actually bringing kingdom parallel partnership with my spouse? And how can we do that better? And where am I not meeting my, my spouse face to face? Think through the same things with your kids. Am I creating safety for my kids? Am I creating a place where they can be honest about all that they are? Am I showing them their value? Uh, am I engaging in kingdom work side by side with my kids so that we know what we're about? We're about Christ and his kingdom. Am I enjoying my kids? For me, face-to-face uh, -face time with my kids, man, it, they're only four and two years old and eight months old. I mean, face-to-face -face time with my kids is play. Love for my kids is play. They just want to play with me. They just want my attention. They just want me to get on the floor and wrestle with them. Am I doing that? Am I doing that? I just want to encourage you guys that as broken as families are, God's plan for the church is to bring kingdom here. That people would see what the kingdom of God will look like. What do I mean when I say kingdom of God? Heaven. That people will see what heaven looks like, where there is no fractured marriages, no broken relationships, where we are all fully known by one another. We have nothing to hide. We have nothing to judge, where there's perfect harmony and God is in the center. That manifested through our homes, manifested through our marriages, manifested through our kids. This is God's purpose for your home. And it starts with pursuing the greatest thing, and that is a gospel-centered, biblical friendship. Amen? All right, let's all stand, and then we'll kick you guys out. <clears throat> Father, uh, I wish that I could say that my marriage and my home is a perfect illustration of the kingdom, but it's so far from that. But God, I just thank you that we're in process. And Lord, no matter where people are at tonight, I just pray that we would have an overwhelming sense, not of guilt and shame and not a sense of, oh, I need to go do something, but a, a, an overwhelming sense of trust that you want to do something in our homes. Lord, that our narrative, we pray, our narrative would not be the same as we've seen so many times that our, our marriages are fractured because of selfishness and sin and brokenness, that our, our kids don't want anything to do with us because we, uh, we haven't, haven't loved them perhaps like we ought to or whatever the case is. We just pray, we plead the blood over our own sinfulness 
We plead the blood over our own inability to, to truly be families and homes like you would want us to be. And we just ask Holy Spirit for you to do supernatural works in our marriages, supernatural works in our kids, in us as parents, as us as friends, in us as single people. Lord, help us to put you first, to make you the preeminent one in our lives, God. And we know that when we seek first your kingdom, all things will be added. And we just pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. All right, have a good night, guys.